to add uh, welcome, Neil's welcome the SISM team. Great to have you guys with us. Um, two weeks, all fresh and full of energy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, it's going to be a good, good couple of weeks. Uh, I want to thank Neil for his opening prayer. He, he's anticipated very well uh, some of the themes uh, that we're going to be revisiting here in this last chapter of Romans. I do want to apologize to Neil. I think the assumption is usually that it's easier to read the Bible passage than to preach. I, I think tonight it might be the other way around. Uh, I think you got the harder job, Neil. Sorry about that. So as I stand here this evening, I'm pinching myself. I can't quite believe that we've made it. Um, 24 sermons we've had uh, from different preachers in this series in Romans. But tonight we've reached the end. We started way back in October. Uh, so it feels good. It feels good. I wonder what you made of Romans 16 as Neil read it so eloquently for us a, a moment ago. You were excited, weren't you? Waiting to hear what we would say about a passage like that. Maybe it feels a bit like an anticlimax after the, the deep theology of the opening chapters of the book, after the practical teaching that we have had in later chapters. Maybe you found yourself a bit underwhelmed, uh, and you wouldn't be the first. I, I can imagine people preaching the book of Romans and, and deciding to you know, we, we could probably have got away with, with just stopping because we'd had, we've interrupted the series, we've had some Faith Academy. We could have just stopped and, and you mightn't have remembered. You mightn't have come back to me saying, Christoph, we've got to do chapter 16. So as I say, our, our sense of whether chapter 16 of Romans is important, does it feel like a, an afterthought, just something Paul had to do to finish a letter? Or... Might it be important? I'm going to suggest that it's incredibly important. Um, and I want to share with you why I've come to that conclusion. The NIV, as you know, often splits up biblical material, gives us uh, headings for paragraphs. Those, those are entirely arbitrary. They're not part of the biblical text. Whoever the translator is just chooses. Um, so whoever's in charge of titles in the NIV hasn't done a whole lot of work with chapter 16, just one title for the whole thing. I, I see five different sections. I thought I'd point them out to you quickly and then uh, maybe share a little. So in the, the first couple of verses, Paul commends Phoebe. Then in a long section from verses verse 3 down to 16, he talks about a lot of different people in the church. He sends them their greetings his greetings. Then in another section, shorter section from verse 17 to 20, he warns the Roman believers to guard their unity. Then in verses 21 to 24, he passes on greetings from other people, and then he finishes with a doxology, a praise to God in verses 25 to 27. We're going to look at these five sections, but not in any sort of even way. Okay, we'll just glance at one or two of them and, and spend a good deal more time in, in some others. So first of all, Paul says, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kentrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people 
and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So who's Phoebe? Phoebe is almost certainly the person who has brought the letter to Rome. Kentrea is a suburb of Corinth, where Paul's writing from, and Paul has entrusted her to, to carry this letter to Rome. That means ordinarily she'd be the one who'd get to read it out as well. So Phoebe's got a very important role here. Paul asks the leaders there to receive her warmly, but he goes, I think, to great lengths to, to give her dignity. He calls her sister. He points out her role as a, a deacon in the church. This is a, a person in church leadership. He urges the Romans to welcome her and to help her. And he recognizes how she has been a help to many people. And, and he's willing to say, and I'm one of them. She has helped me. Phoebe isn't, in this moment, she's not so much a helper of Paul as somebody who's helped Paul. So I just love these opening couple of verses. It's like, it's like Paul is celebrating the postwoman. You know, there are people in life who don't get noticed. Maybe the person on the till or the Amazon delivery person. They're, at best, they're invisible. You, you notice them only if things go wrong. Well, Paul might have taken that view of Phoebe, but he didn't. He says quite a bit about her. He values her. He values her work. He recognizes how she's helped him. And, and it strikes me that that's a brilliant thing for us to do in our relationships with each other. To, to learn to always and continually commend each other at every opportunity. Let's speak warmly to each other. Let's speak warmly about each other. Uh, people say it's not good to talk behind people's backs. I'm not sure. If you're saying good things, work away. Talk about each other. Tell other people what a, a great help somebody's been to you or what an encouragement they've been. That, that builds our, our church family as, as we begin to honor and respect and value each other. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Let's commend each other. In the second part of the chapter, after he's commended Phoebe, Paul sends greetings. I counted them so you don't have to. 26 individuals, 24 of whom he names. And in most cases, he expresses some sort of form of appreciation for them. So he's continuing. It's not just Phoebe whom he speaks warmly of. He's, he's a lot of warm things to say about a lot of people. But let me say a few things about this list. I'm not even going to use any of the names hardly because um, it wasn't easy, Neil. It wasn't easy. <coughs> What's the overall effect when you read a list like that? You sort of think, oh, come on, hurry up. Get through the list. And that maybe shows an impatience that we have when it comes to people. We sometimes imagine when we gather in a big place like this that there are more important things going on. But Paul doesn't see it that way. 
he takes a significant amount of time, a significant proportion of his letter to, to pass on his greeting to some people. I, I think this list shows us that people matter to God. Some of you might recognize that phrase, have deliberately chosen it. Alistair Dunlop was a previous minister of Knock Presbyterian Church, and in the year when he was moderator, moderators in those days got to choose a theme. And Alistair's theme for the year was that people matter to God. I believe Romans 16 is one of those places in the Bible where, where, where we can see that, where we're reminded of that. Here at the end of Paul's letters, uh, letter, we meet this long list of people, some of whom we know a little about, others of whom we know nothing at all about. It doesn't matter, they're named. And we're reminded that whatever we think Romans is, it isn't a theological textbook after all. It's, it's a letter from a pastor to a relatively small number of people whom he loves and counts as friends. People matter to Paul. Folks, I hope we're not surprised by that because Paul, those early believers, they had a proximity to Jesus. Their memories of Jesus were, were, were very strong. I, I expect that ministry in the early church carried the character of Jesus more than we often imagine. So how could it be other than that people would matter to, to Paul? because people mattered to Jesus. I think it's one of the most remarkable things about Jesus' ministry, that he's a popular teacher who can draw crowds of thousands, but he's always, always got time for individual people. He bestows dignity on them. That, that woman, do you remember the woman with the, the flow of blood? Jesus is he's on urgent business. He's going to... to find the girl who's either dying or already dead. It's, it's urgent, but he has time to be with her and to dignify her. Do you remember a blind Bartimaeus? He, he shouts out from the side of the road. Everybody else tells him, shut up. It's Jesus. It's the rabbi. He, he won't have time for you. And, and Jesus pauses, goes to the side of the road and speaks with him. The little children, people were bringing children to Jesus. I think they expected him to say, sorry, uh, I'm, I'm doing the serious stuff. I'm teaching the adults. And he says, bring, bring the children to me. Jesus was no mega church leader strategizing for how he might reach crowds of thousands and tens of thousands. He was a shepherd who would lay down his life for one lost sheep. People matter to God. We shouldn't be surprised to find that at the end of Romans that people matter to Paul too. Do people matter here? I hope they do. Otherwise we're out of step with the living God and what he shows us in his word. A second thing we can learn from this list in, of the names of the church in Rome, the people mattered to one another. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, did you notice how the list works? It's not a 
a, an alphabetical di telephone directory, just names named in individually. It's a series of clusters. If you look carefully, I think you can see these clusters. <coughs> Verses 3 to 5a, I, I wonder if those are the folks who meet in Priscilla and Aquila's house. Verse 5a says, greet also the church that meets in their house. Okay. Verse 11, Paul greets the household of Narcissus. I wonder do the names that come before uh, are those the folks who meet in that household. In verses 12 to 14, he concludes a list of names referring to the other brothers and sisters with them. Is that another household cluster? Verse 15, it's Philologus and some others. And all the Lord's people who are with them. The scholars reckon that there are either five or six different clusters here representing house churches. So the church in Rome is a house church movement. It's a, a network of small communities meeting in particular homes, sharing life together. So people <coughs> mattered to one another in the church in Rome. I want to be careful here. I don't, I don't think we need to say that the way the church in Rome was structured is entirely normative. It, it doesn't need to be. But I am convinced that one of the strengths of the early church, one of the reasons it was so dynamic and grew so rapidly is because the gospel wasn't just being taught to crowds of people, but it was being lived out by communities of people. You didn't come to a, a big church, hear a sermon uh, before hundreds of other people and then suddenly disappear until the next Sunday. No, a small group of you gathered to reflect on God's word together and encourage each other to live it out. Friends, you won't be surprised to hear me say and to urge you, if you're not yet part of a small group, a group of people who help you to walk as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to, to find your way into one. It, if it you have a group like that, great. If you don't, you could consider signing up to, to be in our next uh, network of discipleship groups. If you need any help with that, come and speak to me or, or sign up on church. We get into a place where some people matter to you. In Rome, the people mattered to one another. A third thing we can learn from these verses 13 to 16 is the importance of unity and diversity in the church. In ways that we can't quite see, this church was really, really diverse. What I mean is the, the names don't tell us that, but the scholars can help us with this. So this Roman church, it was diverse in terms of race. So Priscilla and Aquila, we're told, are Jews. Uh, verse 7 and 11, Andronicus, Junia, and Herodian, my fellow Jews. So, so those guys at least, and, and probably some more, are Jewish. So there are Jews on this list, but it's equally clear that many on the list are Gentiles. So this church is ethnically diverse. I, I don't know, have, have you understood, have you ever understood how big a gap that is between Jew and Gentile? It, it, it is huge. And both of these types of people are in this church. 
It's hard to be absolutely definitive about the social status of all the people on this list, but the patterns indicate that the church is diverse in terms of social class. So Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia, those are all names that were common among slaves. So we can imagine there are some people here on the, the lower rung of society. At least some on the list are free people. Others are likely to be quite distinguished people. So some commentators, for example, they think that Aristobulus mentioned in verse 10, they think he's the grandson of Herod the Great and a friend of the Emperor Claudius. Narcissus mentioned in verse 11, a well-known friend of Claudius. So Paul is sending greeting not only to slaves in Rome, but he's also greeting people in or close to the imperial household. Lower class, upper class, probably some middle class too, if such things existed in Rome. This Roman church is diverse in terms of its social status. The church Paul's writing to in Rome is also diverse in terms of gender. Nine out of 26 people whom Paul greets are women. I'm going to guess that's quite a high proportion for a, a man in these times to be writing to a community. He evidently thinks very highly of these women. He singles out four of them as having worked hard. So the ministry in this church in Rome is conducted by a diverse group of men and women. I've talked about the diversity of the church in Rome. It's noticeable that they have somehow found a unity that transcends all this diversity. Paul's language makes it clear where their unity is based. Four times, have a look, verses 3, 7, 9, 10, he describes his friends as being in Christ. So they're not his friends because they're interested in golf, as he is. It's not because they enjoy going on holidays together. They're his friends because they're in Christ, as he is. Five times he describes them as being in the Lord. Eight, eleven, twice in verse 12, then verse 13. Twice he uses family language of sister in verse 1 and brother in verse 15. And notice, too, that he doesn't hold back from talking about his love for these people. He, Paul, loves these people in Rome. So whenever Paul is addressing the believers in Rome, he's addressing brothers and sisters in the Lord whom he loves. Despite their diversity, there's this real sense of unity in this church in Rome. Folks, I, I, I'm going to keep pressing this. I just wonder, have we grasped this wonderful truth about the body of Christ, the church? Our church family ought to be a place where men and women, wealthy and less wealthy, young and old, locals and migrants, can all gather together and experience unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The measure of a good church isn't how many people in my church are like me. That's not the measure of a good church. 
The measure of a good church is how I've grown to love the people in my church who are unlike me. Because the gospel is a stronger bond than any difference between us. That's the kind of church that the gospel forms. So Paul's shown us in verses 1 and 2 how to commend a fellow worker. He's reminded us in, verse, in verses 3 to 16 of the unity and diversity of the church family. And in verses 17 to 20, Paul interrupts the greetings of chapter 16 to bring a warning. Did you spot that? I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Feels a bit odd. Because he's just given greeting after greeting after greeting. He's just about to pass on greetings from other people. And yet he's willing to interrupt all this positivity with a warning. Makes you wonder, what, what's going on here? What, what could be so important that before he finishes this letter, Paul, Paul has to, to warn them? Why would Paul give such prominent place in this letter, the greatest of all his theological treatises, to a warning? It's because the divisions in the church on Rome in Rome weigh heavy on Paul. It's the divisions in the church in a large part which have prompted him to write this letter and to articulate the gospel in the way that he has. To try and persuade you that this really is the case, let me bring you back to the beginning. Whenever I introduced this letter to you, I said there were two discernible purposes, two reasons why Paul had written this letter to Rome. The first purpose was one that was personal to him. It was a missional purpose. After bringing the gospel to the entire northeastern Mediterranean, he was making plans to push west, to go as far as Spain. And he wanted to recruit the believers in Rome as ascending church. He wanted to adopt them as mission partners. And so he spells out the gospel. He wants to show them that the gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that they had already heard, is the same gospel that he will preach when he goes to Spain. We thought about this at some length last week, uh, so I'll move on this evening. Paul's second purpose for writing to the church in Rome, less personal to him, more to do with their circumstances. It's a divided church. The Jewish Christians who were initially prominent in the church in Rome had been exiled by Claudius, A.D. 49. History tells us that five years later after the death of Claudius in A.D. 54, the edict of Claudius was reversed and these exiled Jews began to return to Rome. The Jews who used to lead a majority Jewish church were returning now to a majority Gentile church with new Gentile leadership and culture. The church was divided. 
along ethnic lines. I don't want you to imagine that I'm building that view uh, simply on this one verse here in chapter 16 or on what we know from the extra-biblical historical sources. That the Roman church was struggling with division is evident right throughout the whole letter for those who keep their eyes open as we read. It's been a little bit difficult for us, I think, to, to show you this because different preachers have taken their turn in this series. But let me, let me quickly show you. Let's do a, a quick Bible study. You have a Bible in your hand? Let, let's look at a few verses together. Back in chapter 2, as early as chapter 2, those very rich, dense theological chapters at the start of the book, already Paul's having to talk about division. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is warning the Romans against judging one another. You, therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. The Jews and the Gentiles in Rome are judging each other. Flick with me, chapter 3, verse 27. He's warning them this time not about judging, but about boasting, another sure sign of division. It's not hard to imagine why the Jews and Gentiles in Rome would be, would be boasting. The Gentiles boast over the Jews. There's more of us now, and we're in charge. The Jews boast over the Gentiles. We're the true people of God. We were here first. Paul, having introduced them to the universality of sin in chapter 3, verse 27, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, asks them, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. If everyone's a sinner, why is anybody boasting? How does that even work? Paul addresses the division in chapter 4. When he talks in verse 11, tells us in verse 11 that Abram is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. And at the same time, verse 12, he's also the father of the circumcised who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. Paul's saying, you guys might well be divided about who's circumcised and who's not. You shouldn't be. Because Abram is the father of all who have faith. Verse chapter 11, he draws his teaching about the place of Israel and the purposes of God to a close. And it's here that Paul says more than ever before about the division between Jew and Gentile. Chapter 11, look with me at verse 18. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Verse 20, don't be arrogant. Verse 25, Paul's teaching so that you may not be conceited. Even chapter 12, where he's beginning to, to build a positive theology for the Christian life, he paints on the backdrop of division. In Rome, verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In chapter 12, he, he describes the kind of Christian living where we finally overcome our divisions. <coughs> verse 5 he reminds us that each member belongs to all the others verse 9 he spells out what it means to love one another 
Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Friends, I could take you to more similar verses, but perhaps I've persuaded you by now that this this letter to the Romans is written against a backdrop of division in the church. When you see how often Paul speaks out against division and when he now urges the believers to, to guard their unity, it's clear that Paul's teaching at the end of this letter about Christian love isn't an add-on. It's not a cut and paste from somewhere else that has nothing to do with the rich gospel that he preached in the opening eight chapters. No, this, this invitation, this urging the people to live lives of unity is an outworking of the gospel. It's the only appropriate outworking of the gospel. Paul's gospel is one gospel to create one people of God. As we bring this series of studies in in Paul's letter to the Romans to a close, I want to be sure that we don't miss God's purposes for us in this letter. Sometimes when I hear people talk about the book of Romans, I wonder, have they paid attention to these things that we're talking about here this evening? Paul didn't write this letter to give the Romans a bigger head. He wrote the gospel for them to give them bigger hearts. He wasn't interested in giving them more knowledge at least not more knowledge for the sake of knowledge. His, his purpose was to bind them together in the gospel so that they might love one another. He wanted not more knowledge, but more love. The measure then, as we come to the end of our studies in the book of Romans, the measure of how well we have understood and imbibed this part of God's word is not theological. I hope that's not disappointing for you. The measure of whether we have understood Paul in Romans is not that we're better prepared to sit exams in systematic theology or to write essays on justification by faith or predestination. The measure of how well we've understood the message of Romans is our growing unity. What is it he says? I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. If we've understood the message of Romans, all the theology that Paul shares is to bring the people together into one place to show them that they're not diverse after all, that they are one. He starts in the letter and says, you are united in your sin. 
Jew and Gentile, you're one. He goes on to show us that we are every one of us, anyone who's in Christ, recipients of God's grace. We are united in grace. Those who respond are united as children of Abraham by faith. We have one kind of faith. And we who are in Christ, he's been telling us in these later chapters, we now carry the one spirit of God. We're united as carriers of the spirit. So, anybody who brings division into the church of Jesus Christ is simply not a gospel person. They're doing something that is anti gospel. That person hasn't begun to understand the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Friends, we urgently need to hear God's word in the book of Romans here in Hamilton Road. I'm going to say this. I think we still have some things to learn about unity. We need to be captured once more, each one of us, by the gospel to remember that I am a a sinner before God, that I have received God's grace, that it's only by his grace that I've exercised faith in him. It's only out of his kindness that he's put his spirit on me. If he's done that for me and he's done that for you, we can't be divided. We're one. Verses 24 to 21 to 24, Paul passes on some greetings from eight of his friends in Corinth. I'll leave you to read about those and you can come and tell me if you find anything interesting. Paul's last word at the end of this book It's not a profound teaching. It's not a cheery greeting. It's not a pressing command. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of praise to the God he's been talking about throughout this long letter. He praises the God who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. What was Paul's gospel? Do you remember it? Paul began with a great deal of honesty about the universality of human sin. He told us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He told us about the consequences of our sin, that the wages of sin is death. Once he had told us and reminded us of the bad news, he preached the gospel, the good news. He told us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as Paul closes this great letter he's praising God for the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ friends it's this gospel that makes one people out of any group of people no matter how diverse they are it matters not says Paul whether you're Jew or Gentile what you have in common is so much greater than anything that divides you you have your sin in common I showed you that. 
You've God's grace in common. I've shown you that too. This one gospel by which we have been saved binds us together now to make us the one people of God. Let's pray that it might be so. Let's pray. Lord, when we see clearly what your purposes are for us, when they're spelled out like this in your word, Lord, we, they, they search our hearts. They show us where we are and who we are. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have not been people who have built gospel unity. Forgive us for times when people haven't mattered to us. We haven't really cared about who's beside us or around us. We've imagined that our life with you is somehow an individual or personal thing. Lord, forgive us. Show us that you call us to be a family. Lord, for the times when we have actively undermined unity in the church we pray that you would forgive us we see now now that we've reflected on the gospel we see now how untenable that position is none of us can be judging or boasting or can be conceited all of us simply sinners saved by grace Lord, I pray that you would go to work in our hearts. Lord, we're going to take a moment just now in the silence. And we're going to ask you to help us love the gospel and love the unity of the church. And to offer ourselves to strive for the unity of the church. Hear us as we pray.